Hello, and welcome to Concordia Journal Currents. I'm Will Schumacher, Dean of Theological Research and Publication at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And with me today is Dr. Charles Arend, a Professor of Systematic Theology. Thanks for joining me, Chuck. Thanks, Bob. I'm happy to be here. What we're talking about today is a theology of creation and what it means to be human creatures. Chuck, you've done quite a bit of research and writing on the topic, and I uh, look forward to a great conversation. Yeah, I think it's an exciting topic. It's a fresh topic for our church, and um, there, I think, um, much more work needs to be done in this area. Well, before we get into the conversation, maybe what we need to do is get outside and take a walk and see some creation. Can't think of a better idea. Good afternoon, my name is Beth Holke and I'm one of the authors this year of the uh, Concordia Journal Summer Issue and it's all about God's good creation. Today I have with me Mrs. Diane Meyer and um, Mrs. Gail Zolman um, who are going to take us on a tour of what we're doing here on campus to bring nature and um, God's great creation through his produce um, onto campus. So, hi, how are you two today? Great. Great. Um, I know this is where it all began. Can you kind of tell me a little bit of the story of what's going on here and why we're doing it. Well, three years ago, Gail planted sweet potato vines in here. And when it came time in the fall to dig them up when the vines had died, she and everybody else who was helping dig found that we had hundreds of pounds of sweet potatoes. Mm -hmm. So the sweet potatoes were brought to the food bank, given to staff, to students, anybody who wanted sweet potatoes. After that, standing in this patch, Gail said, Boy, why can't we do more? With Mrs. Meyer's guidance, we put in peppers throughout campus and oh. uh, tomatoes. We have a lot of herbs and uh, cabbages. We put cabbages in the pillars, and they're very decorative. And then when the time when they mature, we harvest them, and the students use them in the food bank. Yeah, the food bank's been really blessed by that. Can we go see a couple of those gardens? Sure. Well, we're going to the multi-purpose triangle. Some people call it the turnabout, some people call it the triangle, but this has been a major, major planning bid for us wow. here on the campus. Look what's going on here. We wow. have, uh, I don't know, seven or eight different varieties of peppers around the outside. Most of them are, the, most of them are hotter. There's a lot of habaneros. And then the interior of the bed, we have lots of basil. You can smell the basil. Yeah. It's fresh yeah. and everything. The sweet yellow peppers over there went in along with the basil. And then the flowers are there. Every bed has flowers as well as food. So What's you have color, color and nourishment all at once. Okay. It's both decorative and sustainable for people to eat. This bed in particular has been a huge point of interest with people from the surrounding Clayton neighborhood who walk through here. Oh. They love this. They love the smell of the basil. They love the, the peppers. And we've invited them to pick whenever they would yeah. like to. The, the basil, this particular bed, has brought the Clayton neighborhood people who walk through here up here all the time. They are just fascinated with the basil, the peppers, how things grow, and we've invited them to pick as well. And they were they are so pleased to be able to come through on their walk and just pick some basil or some peppers to take home for dinner. This is this has been the bed on the campus as far as where people meet. Wow. Every bed on campus has something to eat and flowers for color. So we use it to feed the food bank, 
We use it for the neighbors and the community to come and, and enjoy. The staff, the, staff, the students. The families. Okay. Wow. Anyone who wants it, and you can see it's just as lush. Well, and it's just as pretty as anything else, oh. and you can eat it. It's gorgeous, yeah, and it's just, you can pick up the basil and eat it. It's and the lovely. smell as you walk by yeah. is amazing. It just is really... Gail's got to peel off to go pick up her kids. Thanks, Gail. Beth, this is one of this is a new, something new that we did this year. We had talked about it for a couple of years, but got going over the winter that we were going to do it. Gail and I walked around the campus and found the best spot for the community garden, which is sunlight, land that owned by the seminary, and access to water. We asked the mayor of Clayton and the city manager to come out and walk around with us. Okay. said, go ahead, you have our full support, just keep it neat. We would like you to include members of the community, not just the seminary okay. campus. So we set aside a certain number of these garden plots for members of the Clayton community. Uh, we have 20 individual plots. Some have a lot of tomatoes. Well, speaking of tomatoes, you guys did a couple different plantings also with um, along the fence over here. Gail planted tomatoes. We also had beans that grew up the fence of the soccer field behind the tomatoes. Right. This, this is a neighborhood person. That's a neighborhood person. And what is it? No, it's got to be okra, okra. And it's beautiful. Wow, it's gorgeous. This almost looks like Rosa Sharon flowers, doesn't it? I don't think I've ever seen an okra. Beth, this is another one of our eye-popping flower bed, vegetable beds. The entrance way to the campus by the pillars. It's a real good combination of flowers and edible. And as you can see, we had so many cabbages. Yeah. There's still some left, but in the spring, this this was full of mature cabbages, which we eventually cut off and gave to the food bank. But again, thanks to Gail, knowing just the right things to put together, we've got this beautiful color, and we've also got edibles. Oh yeah, these are carnival bell peppers. When they're way mature, then they turn a kind of an orangey yellow. This this particular garden plot is why we're so happy to have Gail as our head of grounds because she thinks of these things that nobody else would think of. There's sunflowers here in the spring, there's lettuces and spinaches, there's these beautiful celosia, and look at this red. These these are amazing. Those but are they huge. they all form sort of a border around this mass of habanero peppers. Yeah. Which look at this. They're just gorgeous. There's tons of them. But these are just loaded with peppers, just loaded. Something different, but the color in here, um, nobody could do better than Concordia Seminary with having Gail here oh, as head of ground. I She's, agree. She's got a hand of looks, just... Nothing's looked like this before she became in charge here. Now this is the perennial quad. It was funded originally by the Seminary Guild. Right over here, this, this is asparagus that was planted for the first time this year. Everything else is perennials, as you can see, adding to the color and the height and the texture in here. These tomato plants did really well in here. Really big and strong. Gail they? went out and got these colorful plant <laughs> holders for the tomatoes. Wonderful. We have chocolate mint all along the side. Well, now, what is chocolate mint? It's an herb, like mint, oh, grows, just the grows like a flavor. weed, but it's a chocolate flavor. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And the seminary got new benches this year. We got a fountain, oh. everything to make this as peaceful and enjoyable a place to sit down and study or sit down and talk with people. 
and uh, this this is a this is a hidden jewel here it on the really campus. Is. This is a place you want to come and visit, exactly. and you just don't want to leave. Exactly. But Diane, this has just been a real joy walking through the campus and and seeing what you have done with the place, and have you just really kind of made gardens out of plots of land that were not initially set for that area. But they're it's, beautiful. It's a campus that just. Uh, called out to be planted with everything and it's, it's just been so satisfying to do it and I always carry a camera wherever I go on a campus even if I walk my dog just because there might be something growing to take a picture of for the next time. Yeah it's it's amazing and I, I thank you for your time today and for showing us around. I'm, it was wonderful to meet Gail and she's done a beautiful job of keeping this campus up. She has. Just kind of reminding us that everything does come from the ground and, and is comes from, from the Lord. And, and the Lord has blessed us on this campus with wonderful bounty. Absolutely. And, and it's great that we now have another connection with the community. Exactly. Keep that going. So again, well, thank thanks very so much. much. I enjoyed it, Beth. This was a great afternoon. It thank you. Thanks. Well, we're back. And uh, that was enlightening. And uh, really a, a beautiful campus, obviously. But more than that, I think it's uh, intriguing how diverse the, the nature is that's even here on our campus. Yeah, it really is. Um, talking with our grounds crew, uh, Gail, a student named Sean, um, whoever designed the campus in terms of trees provided a huge uh, variety of trees. Uh, there are over two, if not more than three dozen kinds of trees on the campus. And uh, in recent years, under the leadership of uh, uh, Mrs. Meyer, I was going to say integrating um, uh, gardening into the campus, um, highlighting our uh, connection and uh, dependence upon um, uh, creation to uh, provide for our lives. Yeah, that was a real eye-opener for me. The, uh, uh, to the uninitiated, it's just green and beautiful. Right. But when you start looking at it more closely, you realize there's a lot of thought uh, in given to this uh, and there's a, a deep connection between the green that we see and and our life here on this place yeah and I've only begun growing in the last couple of years I have to say that one of the things I have learned working through this entire project is how often we seem to walk through God's creation oblivious uh, to the sheer diversity of uh, creatures gifts that he has filled our planet with, you might say. And as I've thought about it, that just doesn't seem quite right that God has created such an incredibly beautiful and diverse earth um, to not pay attention, ignore, uh, not to always uh, delight in uh, what he has made, uh, even as um, the Old Testament people readily uh, exclaim their awe and wonder um, at the um, uh, variety of creatures and trees and mountains and uh, rivers within creation. Well I can certainly see that from a from an aesthetic point of view, just delighting in the in the beauty of creation. Uh, but how did you as a theologian get in, engaged in this in this topic? I mean it's, it's one thing to appreciate the creation around us in an aesthetic way, to marvel at the beauty and be struck by the, the awesome grandeur of it. But it's a different thing to reflect on this theologically. How did you as a theologian get engaged? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Uh, there are probably uh, several avenues that I took uh, to arrive at this point. I'd have to say from the very beginning, going back to, golly, 20 years now <laughs> or, or more, I've always had an interest in 
uh, what we might call first article theology, the theology of the first article of the creed, namely uh, creation. And probably two influences weighed heavily upon me there. Uh, one was uh, Gustav Wingren, his book, um, I first became acquainted with him through a Lutheran vocation, as many of our pastors have. And then I read a book that he wrote called Creation and Law. Uh, in the introduction there, he makes the point that much of 20th century theology was obsessed with what he would call, um, I suppose, epistemology or revelation, the question of how do we know about God? And it was sort of, uh, his argument was that much sort of 20th century theology was obsessed with how do we know about God working from, you might say, the third article back to the second article. Right, the third article with the, the Holy Spirit revealing Christ to us. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but he makes the interesting observation that the creed begins with the first article, and the first article comes first for a reason. In other words, he said that it lays the ontological foundation for the second and third articles. Um, you could say the foundation, the context for the second and third articles. In the same way that, you know, he had noticed that 20th century theologians often began with the book of Exodus, and the book of Genesis came much later. As Israel reflected on the God who redeemed them, they said, oh, well, he must also have created the world. Well, he makes the observation also, Genesis comes first for a reason. So that really got me thinking about the relationship of the first article to the second and third article and how it influences or forms or uh, shapes the second and third articles, how we think of salvation, Christ, and, uh, and the like. Um, and, and then my work with Luther and the catechisms. Uh, as I worked through Luther's catechetical writings in the 1520s, I noticed that he develops an increasing appreciation for the uh, goodness of creation, for the, the value of creation. So in the early 1520s, there's sort of a, a Neoplatonic spiritualizing, perhaps he inherited from St. Augustine, um, when he interprets certain parts of the catechism. For example, uh, when he talks about the threats and promises of the Old Testament in the um, late 1519s or early 1520s, those threats and promises of the Old Testament are inferior to those of the New Testament. Why? Because they dealt with physical things, uh, plagues, droughts, uh, famines, fire and brimstone, whereas the threats and promises of the New Testament were supposedly higher because they dealt with spiritual things like heaven and hell. After 1525, he doesn't distinguish between those anymore. Uh, the same thing would apply to the fourth petition, give us our daily bread in the early 1520s. Um, he would interpret it most commonly in terms of uh, Lord's Supper, Word of God, uh, maybe even Jesus himself in terms of how John handles it. But then after the 1525, he never does that again. Uh, daily bread means food, uh, the stuff of life. Um, and there are a few other instances where you can see this shift occurring, and I think it's partly as he's working through the ramifications of the gospel. Um, he comes to embrace the goodness of life on earth, the goodness of creation uh, evermore, and moves away from that Platonizing of, um, Neo, uh, of uh, Augustinianism. And the other thing we have to keep in mind, he was an Old Testament scholar, you know, so... Yeah. Uh, rather than having Greek philosophy shape his reading of the New Testament, as perhaps it did with Zwingli, uh, for Luther, the Old Testament provides him with a worldview that shapes his reading of the New Testament, which really grounds it in the, um, 
uh, stuff of uh, creation. And you did get married in 1525. Well, yeah, I think that's probably the real reason. You know, Katie was a pretty good brewmaster, and um, I, that may end up being, you know, perhaps the real reason. Life married to Katie was just better than yeah, life in right. the monastery. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I wonder about that too. Um, well. Uh, that's a that's a great introduction. Of course, you do call to mind the the ways, especially in the catechisms, that Luther uh, develops this very positive understanding of of creation, and as, as you've pointed out on other occasions, uh, identifies the human creature as a creature together with other creatures. Yeah, and that's the other thing. So the one is um, sort of embracing the goodness of creation, you know, and so Luther is kind of reclaiming the. Um, insights and confessions of the creed, uh, mm -hmm. embracing the insights of uh, Irenaeus and certainly <laughs> the entire uh, scriptures. The whole anti-Gnostic idea. E exactly. And, and the other thing though is that with the Reformation you do have a little bit of a shift, say, from the creeds where they focused on uh, the Trinity and the two natures of Christ. You've got a little bit of a shift to the question of what it means to be human when you think of all the topics that the Augsburg Confession uh, addresses. Uh, okay. Sin. Yeah. Um, free will, uh, faith, justification is basically about um, how are we as human beings justified or uh, however you wish to express it, uh, made right again, restored, um, good works. Um, Article 7 through 16 of the Augsburg Confession deals with the church. Well, that's basically about the human community, the new human com community, mm -hmm. the redeemed and sanctified human community. So th there's kind of this emphasis or turn to saying, okay, what does it mean to, to be human? Um, you know, that the topic of theology is, uh, how was it expressed? Um, the justification of the sinner. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's where, you know, issues of law and gospel, two kinds of righteousness certainly come into play. Well, I've, I've become interested also, particularly because of Luther's treatment of God made me together with all creatures in the first article. Also, what does it mean to be a creature? To be human, to be sure. Yes. Um, in, in terms of being made in the image of God, being held accountable by God, being justified by God. But also then, to be a creature within uh, a creation. We take this for granted. But it's surprising how often that you can, you know, say, well, we're creatures. When people think of, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon, or they yeah, think not of, that uh, kind of creature. animals or <laughs> something like that. Um, and, and, and so with this goes questions, for example, that I think are very fundamental to sort of first archotheology. So, uh, for what purpose did God create us? Uh, you know, answers that I often will get are, well, create us to live with him forever in heaven. Uh, well, that's not entirely untrue, but you can't really get that out of Genesis 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of salvation, you know, I'm, you know God uh, in Jesus Christ uh, restored us, justified us, so we can live with him uh, uh, forever. Uh, well, for what purpose did he create us? I, I, I mean, if that's the reason he created us, he, I, you know, I suppose he could have made us like angels, uh, purely spiritual beings. Uh, who enjoyed uh, his presence immediately and directly. Um, but he didn't. He made us with bodies and senses. I mean, Luther's thing about made me, uh, gave me reason in all my senses, mm -hmm. uh, my body and soul. And, and so I think, 
you know, what does it mean to be a creature? You know, what do I mean by body and soul? Is the soul the higher part? Uh, uh, maybe we can't define these separately too neatly and cleanly. Is so a disembodied consciousness? The Old Testament seems mm -hmm. to treat so as uh, life, animation, uh, nefesh. Um, so what does it mean to be a creature and that he made us from the ground along with all other creatures? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, say, well, he created us for the purpose of working together with him in taking care of his creation. And to do that, he made us from the earth along with all other creatures. Uh, we relate to all the creatures in a way that even the angels don't, so he didn't give the angels dominion over the earth. And at the same time, he made us distinctly in terms of being made in his image and being given dominion. That provides a really rich uh, view of the doctrine of creation. It opens it up instead of focusing it down to a very narrow topic. I think in the 20th century, well, probably since, since Darwin's work uh, 150 years ago, uh, there's been a tendency to focus the Christian doctrine of creation on just the simple fact that God created us, we didn't evolve. Right, right. Uh, as, as if that was really the purpose of having a, a first article of the creed. And you're suggesting that this has a, a much richer positive value, not just a, 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 an antithesis to a, a materialistic evolution. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and that uh, while opposing Darwin's view of mm -hmm. where everything came from, how creation came into existence, you know, uh, you know we do affirm a a creator, we affirm a, a beginning, but we can also affirm, uh, how shall I say, a certain kinship uh, with other creatures. The, the one thing we share in common with all other creatures is the fact that we're all created. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and, and as long as you're on that topic, for that matter, you know, creation really provides us with our world view. There's the creator and there's creation. And that becomes the basis for the first commandment. That becomes the foundation for the Nicene Creed uh, rejecting Arius. Uh, you know, right. is uh, the Son of God creator or is he creature? The Nicene Creed says that's the fundamental difference. Creator, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we share more in common with all other creatures in a sense uh, than we share in common with God in that we are all together uh, created. Uh, but that also implies uh, that there's a certain relationship that we have. Uh, with right. creation, um, in we share a common dependence upon creation. Uh, we were given a name, the animals. So there's a certain relationship there, um, and for that matter, you know, I'm starting to wander a little bit. I, I realize, but it just sort of occurred to me too, that God Himself um, has a relationship with creation. Not only did He create it, but He continues to care for creation. And you know, another question that arises is, for what purpose did He create? animals. For what purpose did he create one million to ten million different forms of life on earth, mm -hmm. depending on which estimates one goes with? Was it simply for human use? Well, humans didn't really need animals prior to the fall for either clothing or for food. Uh, for what purpose did God create spaces and then fill these spaces, teeming with creatures of every kind? Um, well, one, they all belong to him. The Psalms talk about that all the time. And one could argue for God's own delight and God's own pleasure. You know, so those are kinds of, you know, I think fascinating questions. Why do you make us, as part of this diverse creation, how do we think about all these 
you know, is creation, as some have put it, simply um, the backdrop mm. uh, for the uh, story of salvation, simply a stage. And there's a deeper dimension to this too, a sort of eternal dimension to this. Uh, it's also become sort of part of the, the popular Christian piety that, that this world, this creation, isn't really our home. That we're, we belong in heaven. Right. Uh, and there's a tendency to focus, ex and shouldn't we as Christians focus on the spiritual and uh, uh, look forward to leaving this world and, and uh, being in heaven? Yeah. Especially if you think of spiritual as the opposite of body. And, and exactly. Not I think it, I'm Holy talking in the, in, the, in the sort of popular mind of spirit versus body. Yeah, and that may testify as much as anything to the um, ongoing um, influence of, I suppose, Greek philosophical thought on Western culture. I think one of the things that really surprised me as I did some of this work, especially in the Old Testament, is how not only does creation involve all of creation, human and non-human, but the various covenants that God made point toward a new creation, God reclaiming creation and renewing creation. Uh, so even in Genesis 9, God doesn't simply make a covenant with Noah and his family, he makes a covenant with every living creature. Mm -hmm. And you find those kinds of uh, promises repeated, especially in the prophets, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Hosea, uh, this picture of um, the new age to come as being this, I don't know if I want to say a new Eden, a new creation, uh, where humans and animals are all living in harmony again together. And, and I think, you know, where else this helps is when you start thinking about the Son of God, I mean, it, to me it's profound to think the Creator became a creature in order to reclaim His creation. So you've got this interesting sequence that in Genesis God creates the entire earth, the animals, and then humans. Humans make a mess of things, and so in reclaiming it, God kind of reverses. He begins reclaiming, restoring it where the damage began with humans. So he begins with, well, I should say you had creation, the animals, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sin. So God begins with the new Adam, Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. reclaiming and renewing his creation. Then that new creation extends to the new human community, the church, the church, and then to the entire creation as you have it in, say, Romans 8. And maybe that's the part that we haven't worked on very hard. We really haven't. And if you think of Jesus' miracles, you know, a lot of times I recall in confirmation, you know, when we talked about his uh, walking on water, healing the um, uh, sick, uh, feeding the 5,000, casting out demons, a lot of times these miracles were cited as evidence that he's divine. See, he does divine stuff. And that's true, I don't want to take away from that. Uh, but why these particular things? In each case, I think you can make the case that here you have the Creator reclaiming and restoring His creation. Uh, whether it's calming the storms, uh, whether it's restoring bodies to health, uh, reclaiming it from uh, a Satan uh, in the casting out of demons, all with a view toward the resurrection of the new creation bursting forth um, in the resurrected body of Christ. So where do we go from here as, as theologians, as the church, as uh, congregations? How does this get, how does this re expanded and enriched view of creation and our, and our 
our life as creatures, human creatures. How does that get preached? How does it get taught? How does it get lived out? Well, <laughs> that's something I've got to work on. <laughs> I think it's something we all have to work yeah, on. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things. One, I think there is... Um, uh, we, we need to continue to explore what, it is, what does it mean to be a human creature. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated by the question, why did God give us five senses? Um, you know, part of the answer, I think, has to be so that we can interact with the full phenomena of his creation. Uh, why did God give us a sense of beauty, awe, wonder? Mm. Um, uh, partly both, I suspect, to see our place within creation. Like, I would never have dreamed of making this. Right. Um, and, and also uh, as testimony to the handiwork of the Creator. You know, so I, I think we've got more work to do in um, embracing, um, you know, I think what Andy Bartelt is called a full-bodied uh, creatureliness. Um, uh, highlighting our connection uh, that, that, that we don't relate to God apart from creation. God deals with us through creation, first and foremost our bodies. Uh, but whether it's through water, through bread and wine, Lord's Supper, whether it's through the food that we eat, he deals with us through creation, we deal with God uh, through creation. So I think more work has to be done there. And then, and then on the side of the new creation, how does the church give testimony to the new creation breaking in? You know, well, first and foremost, obviously through the proclamation of the gospel, uh, the sacraments, the creation of the new humanity, but then I'd like to say it's a new humanity, the, the new creation, the church lives within creation. Uh, as my friend Joel Kurtz would put it, how do we inhabit the space? How do we um, give testimony to God restoring creation? Maybe by our own efforts toward uh, uh, restoring the little pieces of ground on which we live. Like our campus, and how do we inhabit a place, a specific place, these exactly. few acres that, uh, that God has put us on. Exactly. And, and, and there's some other things that, in connection with that, you know, if God created this and it belongs to him and it's beautiful, how do we handle it in such a way that we highlight the beauty of what he has made uh, to destroy what he has made, to render ugly what he has made, seems like it would dishonor mm -hmm. both what he has created as well as uh, uh, dishonoring God himself, you know, I think there are some things to think about there. And then the whole issue of food, you and I are Wendell Berry fans. Very much. Um, uh, there's nothing that connects us to God's creation more than eating. I mean, you're, you're consuming um, the earth. I mean, think about the Bible, the, uh, the prominence of agriculture, food, eating, feasts and how they play. You know, how can the church recapture that? We used to celebrate planting, mm -hmm. uh, have planting festivals, harvest, harvest festivals. festivals. Right. There, there, uh, people it was sensed more common a, to have prayers for, for favorable weather. And, yeah, people yeah. sensed a direct dependence uh, yeah. upon creation and upon God who provided for creation and mm -hmm. uh, worked through creation. Yeah. Well, you've provided us with uh, rich food for thought and I think also set us on a, a fruitful and, and a rich course for theological inquiry. There's a lot more that uh, we can all do together. I look forward to it. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Will. And thank you for joining us on Concordia Journal Currents. We'll see you next time.